0: Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash Sleepy and use code Sleepy to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. ButcherBox.com slash Sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. and Shanna McCraney. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, these names that I just read are brand new patrons on patreon.com, which is a site that you can go on and support creators of the work they like. So if the Sleepy Podcast has helped you get a better night's rest, and wake up more refreshed the next day then consider going to patreon.com slash radio and donating even a dollar a month it goes a really long way at five dollars a month you'll get access to extra poetry readings that are not on the regular podcast but no matter how much you donate your name will be read on the opening credits of the next show after you do so Again, if you want to be a part of making the show, go to patreon.com sleepyradio Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lebkowski and the cover-up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight, I'm going to be reading a book that actually just Enter the public domain this past year, which was very exciting to a lot of people like me who are nerdy and wait for New Year's to see which books entered the public domain. Really exciting stuff. Anyways, tonight I'm going to be reading um, Aldous Huxley's satirical Those Barren Leaves, which to be honest with you is a really snoozy read, so I hope it helps you doze off into a deep, deep slumber, and stay sound asleep, and just so you know, uh, you might be able to hear this throughout the reading, but it is a nice, windy day in Vermont right now, and you may be able to hear that outside, but it is a very soothing white noise sound. To go behind the reading as well. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Mrs. Aldwinkles Chapter 1 The little town of Veza stands at the confluence of two torrents that come down in two deep valleys from the Afuan Mountains Turbulently for they still remember their mountain source the united streams run through the town Silence in Veza is the continuous sound of running waters. Then, gradually, the little river changes its character. The valley broadens out. Soon, the hills are left behind, and the waters, grown placid as a Dutch canal, glide slowly through the meadows of the coastal plain and mingle with the tideless Mediterranean. Dominating Beza itself, a bold promontory of hill juts out like a wedge between the two valleys. Near the top of the hill, and set in the midst of ilex trees and tall cypresses that rise up blackly out of the misty olives, stands a huge house. A solemn and regular façade. 20 windows wide, looks down over the terraced cypresses and the olive trees onto the town. Behind and above this facade, one sees irregular masses of buildings climbing up the slopes beyond. And the whole is dominated by a tall, slender tower that blossoms out of the top, after the manner of Italian towers into overhanging. Maticulations. It is the summer palace of the Saibo Malaspina, one time princes of Massa and Carrera, dukes of Vesa and marquesas, counts and barons of various other villages in the immediate neighborhood. The road is steep that leads up from Vezza to the palace of the Saibo Malaspina, perched on the hill above the town. The Italian sun can shine most powerfully, even in September, and olive trees give but little shade. The young man with the peaked cap and the leather wallet slung over his shoulder pushed his bicycle slowly and wearily up the hill. Every now and then, he halted, wiped his face and sighed. It was on an evil day, he was thinking, on a black, black day, for the poor postman of Vezo, that the insane old English woman with the impossible name bought this palace, and a blacker day still, when she had elected to come and live in it. In the old days, The place had been quite empty. A couple of peasant families had lived in the outhouses. That was all. Not more than one letter a month between them. And as for telegrams, why, there had never been a telegram for the palace in all the memory of man. But those happy days were now over. And what with letters... What well, with packets of newspapers and parcels, but with expresses and telegrams, there was never a day and scarcely an hour in the day when someone from the office wasn't toiling up this accursed house. True, the young man went on thinking, One got a good tip for bringing a telegram or an express. But being a young man of sense, he preferred leisure if a choice had to be made to money. The expense of energy was not to be compensated for by the three francs he would receive at the end of the climb. Money brings no satisfaction if one has to work for it, for if one works for it, one has no time to spend it. The ideal, he reflected. As he replaced his cap, then once more started climbing. The ideal would be to win a big prize in the lottery. A really immense prize. He took out of his pocket a little slip of paper, which had been given him only this morning by a beggar in exchange for a couple of soldi. It was printed with rhymed prophecies of good fortune. And what good fortune. The beggar had been very generous. He would marry the woman of his heart, have two children, become one of the most prosperous merchants of his city, and live till 83. To these oracles he gave small faith. Only the last verse seemed to him. Though he would have found it difficult to explain why, worthy of serious attention. The last verse embodied a piece of specific good advice. (inaudible) Intanto se vuoi vincere un bel turnone al lato. il sete il sedice. Uniti al cinquantoro. He read through the verse several times until he had got it by heart then folded up the paper and put it away again. Seven, sixteen and fifty-eight. There certainly was something very attractive about those numbers. (inaudible) Ciocca, il sitte, il sedici. uniti al cinquantoro He had a very good mind to do as the oracle commanded. It was a charm, a spell to bind fate. One couldn't fail to win with those three numbers. He thought of what he would do when he had won. He had just decided on the make of the car he would buy. One of the new 1440 horsepower Lancias would be more elegant, he thought, than a Fiat and less expensive, for he retained his good sense and his habits of economy, even in the midst of overflowing wealth, than in his Sada Fraschini, more in when he found himself at the foot of the steps leading up to the palace door. He leaned his bicycle against the wall, and, sighing profoundly, rang the bell. This time, The butler only gave him two francs instead of three. Such is life, he thought, as he coasted down through the forest of silver olive trees toward the valley. The telegram was addressed to Mrs. Oldwinkle, but in the absence of the lady of the house, who had driven down with all her guests to the marina di Vetsa for a day's bathing, the butler brought the telegram to Miss Thurplow. Miss Thurplow was sitting in the dark little gothic room in the most ancient part of the palace composing the 14th chapter of her new novel on a Corona typewriter. She was wearing a printed cotton frock, huge blue checks ruled Carton fashion on a white ground, very high in the waist, very full and long in the skirt, a frock that was at once old-fashioned and tremendously contemporary, schoolgirlish and advanced, demure and more Chelsea-ishly emancipated. The face that she turned towards the butler as he came in was very smooth and round and pale, so smooth and round that one would never have credited her with all the thirty years of her age. The features were small and regular, the eyes dark brown, and their arched brows looked as though they had been painted on to the porcelain mask by an oriental brush. Her hair was nearly black, and she wore it drawn sleekly back from her forehead, Entwined in a large knot at the base of her neck Her uncovered ears were quite white and very small It was an inexpressive face The face of a doll But of an exceedingly intelligent doll She took the telegram and opened it It's from Mr. Kalami she explained to the butler, "He says he's coming by the three twenty, and will walk up. I suppose you had better have his room got ready for him." The butler retired, but instead of going on with her work, Miss Thirplow leaned back in her chair and pensively lighted a cigarette. Miss Thurplow came down at four o'clock. After her siesta, dressed not in the blue and white frock of the morning, but in her best afternoon frock, the black silk one, with the white piping round the flounces. Her pearls, against his dark background, looked particularly brilliant. There were pearls, too, in her pale, small ears. Her hands were heavily ringed. After all that she had heard of Calamie from her hostess, she had thought it necessary to make these preparations, and she was glad that his unexpected arrival was to leave her alone with him at their first introduction. Alone, it would be easier for her to make the right, the favorable first impression which is always so important. From what Mrs. Aldwinkle had said about him Miss Thurplow flattered herself That she knew just the sort of man he was Rich, handsome, and what an amorous Mrs. Aldwinkle had dwelt, of course Very lengthily and admiringly on that last quality The smartest hostesses pursued him He was popular in the best and most brilliant sense, but not a mere social butterfly, Mrs. Aldwinkle had insisted. On the contrary, intelligent, fundamentally serious, interested in the arts, and so on. Moreover, he had left London at the height of his success and gone traveling around the world to improve his mind. Yes, Calumny was thoroughly serious. Miss Thurplow had taken all this with a grain of salt. She knew Mrs. Aldwinkle's weakness for being acquainted with great men and her habit when the admittedly great were lacking of promoting her common acquaintances to the rank of greatness. Deducting the usual 75% rebate for Mrs. Aldwinkle's Ecomiums. She pictured to herself a Calumet who is one of nature's guardsmen, touched, as guardsmen sometimes are, with that odd and simple reverence for the mysteries of art, which makes these aristocratic autodidacts frequent the drawing rooms where high brows are to be found, makes them ask poets out to expensive meals, makes them buy cubist drawings, makes them even try, in secret, to write verses and paint themselves. Yes, yes, Miss Thurplow thought. She perfectly knew the type. That was why she had made these preparations, put on that masterpiece of a fashionable black dress, those pearls, those rings. That was why she had donned At the same time, the dashing manner of one of those brilliant, equivocal-looking, high-born young women at whose expense, according to Mrs. Aldwinkle, he had scored his greatest amorous triumphs. For Miss Thurplow didn't want to owe any of her success with this young man, and she liked to be successful with everybody, to the fact that she was a female novelist. good review. She wanted, since he was one of nature's guardsmen with a fortuitous weakness for artists, to present herself to him as one of nature's guardswomen with a talent for writing equally fortuitous and unessential. She wanted to show him that, after all, she was quite up to all his social business even though she had been poor once, and a governess at that. And knowing her, Miss Thurplow was sure that Mrs. Aldwinkle couldn't have failed to tell him that. She would meet him on level of terms, as guardswoman to guardsman. Afterwards, when he had liked her for her guardish qualities, make could get down to art and he could begin to admire her as a stylist as well as a brilliant young woman of his own sort. Her first sight of him confirmed her in her belief that she had been right to put on all her jewelry in her dashing manner. For the butler ushered into the room positively the young man who, on the covers of illustrated magazines, Presses his red lips to those of young women of his choice. No, that was a little unfair. He was not quite so intolerably handsome and silly as that. He was just one of those awfully nice, well-brought-up, uneducated young creatures who are such a relief sometimes after too much highbrow society brown, blue-eyed, soldierly and tall, frightfully upper-class and having all the glorious self-confidence that comes of having been born rich and in a secure and privileged position. A little insolent, perhaps, in his consciousness of good looks, in his memory of amorous successes. But lazily, insolent, The roasted quails fell into his mouth. It was unnecessary to make an effort. His eyelids drooped in sleepy arrogance. She knew all about him at sight. Oh, she knew everything. He stood in front of her, looking down into her face, smiling with eyebrows questioningly raised, entirely unembarrassed. Miss Thurplow stared back at him quite as jauntily. She too could be insolent when she wanted to. You're Mr. Callamy," she informed him at last. He inclined his head. My name is Mary Thurplow. Everybody else is out. I shall do my best to entertain you. He bowed again and took her extended hand. I've heard a great deal about you from Lillian Aldwinkle, he said. That she'd been a governess, Miss Thurplow wondered. And from lots of other people, he went on, not to mention your books. Ah, but don't let's talk of those, she waved him merrily away. They're relevant. One's old books, Irrelevant because they're written by someone who has ceased to exist. Let the dead bury their dead. The only book that counts is the one one's writing at the moment. And by the time that it's published and other people have begun to read it, that too has become irrelevant. So that there is never a book of one's own that is interesting to talk about. Miss Thurplow spoke languidly with a little drawl, smiling as she spoke and looking at Calamy with half-closed eyes. Let's talk of something more interesting, she concluded. The weather, he suggested. Why not? Well, it's a subject, said Calamee, about which, as a matter of fact, I can speak at the moment with interest. I might almost say with warmth. He pulled out a colored silk handkerchief and wiped his face. Such an inferno as those dusty roads in the plain I never walked through before. Sometimes, I confess, in this Italian glare, I pine for the glooms of London. The parasol of smoke, the haze that takes the edge off a building at a hundred yards and hangs mosquito netting halfway down every vista. I remember meeting a Sicilian poet, said Mr. Plough, who had invented the successor of Theocritus on the spur of the moment, who had said the same. Only he preferred Manchester. Bellissima Manchester. She turned up her eyes and brought her hands together with a clap. He was a specimen in that glorious menagerie one meets at Lady Trunnion's. That was a good name to drop casually like that. Lady Trunnion's was one of the salons where nature's guardsmen and guardswomen encountered the funnies and the fuzzy wuzzies. In a word, the artist. By using the word menagerie, Miss Thurplow put herself with calumny on the guardsman's side of the bars. But the effect of the talismanic name on Calumet was not what she had expected. And does that frightful woman still continue to function, he said. You must remember, I've been away for a year. I'm not up to date. Miss Thurplow hastily readjusted the expression of her face, the tone of her voice. Smiling with a knowing contempt, she said, but she's nothing to Lady Giblet, is she? For real horrors, you must go to her. Why, the house is positively mauvais She moved her jeweled hand from side to side with the gesture of a connoisseur in horror. Calumny did not entirely agree. Vulgar, perhaps, at the giblets, but not worse, he said, and in a an tone of voice, with an expression on his face that showed Miss Plough that he meant what he said, and didn't at the bottom of his soul secretly adore these social delights. After having been away, as I have, for a year or so, to come back to civilization and find the same old people doing the same idiotic things, it's astonishing. One expects everything to be quite different. I don't know why. Perhaps because one's rather different oneself. But everything is exactly the same. The giblet, the trunnion and even, let's be frank, our hostess, though I'm honestly very fond of poor dear Lillian. There's not the slightest change. Oh, it's more than astonishing. It's positively terrifying. It was at this point in the conversation that Miss Thurplow became aware that she had made a huge mistake. That she was sailing altogether on the wrong tack. Another moment, and she would have consummated a hideous error in social judgment, have irreparably made what she called, in her jovial, undergraduateish moments, a floater. Miss Thurplow was very sensitive about her floaters. Memories of floaters had a way of sticking deep in her spirit making wounds that never thoroughly healed. cicatrized the old scars still hurt from time to time. Suddenly, for no reason, in the middle of the night, or even in the middle of the jolliest party, she would remember an ancient floater, just like that, a propos de bas would remember and be overcome by a feeling of self-reproach, and retrospective shame. When there was no remedy, no spiritual prophylaxis, one might do one's best to invent triumphantly right and tactful alternatives to the floater. Imagine oneself, for example, whispering to Sister Fanny the mollifying instead of the bitter, wounding phrase, might walk in fancy with the airiest dignity out of Barda's studio, into the dirty little street, past the house with the canary hanging in the window, an exquisite touch, the canary. Away, away. When in fact, oh lord, what a fool one had been, and how miserable afterwards, in actual fact, one had stayed. One could do one's best, but one could never really persuade oneself that the floater hadn't happened. Imagination might struggle to annihilate the odious memory, but it never had power to win a decisive victory. And now, if she wasn't careful, she'd have another floater rankling and separating in her memory. How could I have been so stupid, she thought, How could I? For it was obvious now that the dashing manner, the fashionable disguise, were entirely inappropriate to the occasion. Calumny, it was clear, didn't appreciate that sort of thing at all. He might have once, but he didn't now. If she went on like this, she'd have him putting her down as merely frivolous, worldly, snob, and it would need time and enormous efforts to obliterate the disastrous first impression. Surreptitiously, Miss blouse slipped the opal ring from off the little finger of her right hand, held it for a moment, clenched out of sight in her lap, then, when Calumny wasn't looking, pushed it down into the crevice between the padded sea. In the back of her shins-covered armchair. Terrifying, she echoed. Yes, exactly the word. Those things are terrifying. The size of the footman. She held up one hand above her head. The diameter of the strawberries. She brought both hands, still far too glittering. She regretfully noticed with their afraid of rings, to within a foot of one another in front of her. The inanity of the lion hunters, the roaring of the lions. It was unnecessary to do anything with her hands now. She dropped them back into her lap and took the opportunity to rid herself of the scarab and the brilliance. And like the conjurer, who makes patter to divert attention from the workings of his trick, she leaned forward and began to talk very rapidly and earnestly. And seriously, she went on, putting seriousness into her voice and smoothing the laughter out of her face so that it was wonderfully round, earnest, and ingenuous. What rot the lions do roar! suppose it's awfully innocent of me but I always imagine that celebrated people must be more interesting than other people they're not she let herself fall back rather dramatically into her chair in the process one hand seemed to have got accidentally stuck behind her back she disengaged it but not before the scarab and the brilliance had been slipped into the cache. There was nothing left now but the emerald that could stay. It was very chaste and austere, but she would never be able to take off her pearls without his noticing. Never, even though men were so inconceivably unobservant, Rings were easy enough to get rid of, but a necklace, and they weren't even real pearls. Calamy, meanwhile, was laughing. I remember making the same discovery myself, he said. It's rather painful at first. One feels as though one has somehow been swindled and done in. You remember what Beethoven said that he seldom found in the play of the most distinguished virtuosi that excellence which he supposed he had right to expect. One has a right to expect celebrated people to live up to their reputations. They ought to be interesting. Miss Thplow leaned forward again, nodding her assent with a childlike earnestness. I know lots of obscure little people, she said who are much more interesting and much more genuine one somehow feels than the celebrated ones. It's genuineness that counts, isn't it? Callamy agreed. I think it's difficult to be genuine, Miss Thurplau went on. If one's a celebrity or a public figure or anything of that sort. She became very confidential indeed. I get quite frightened when I see my name in the papers and photographers want to take pictures of me and people ask me out to dinner. I'm afraid of losing my obscurity. Genuineness only thrives in the dark, like celery. How little and obscure she was. How poor and honest, so to speak. Those boring lion huntresses. They had no hope of passing through the needle's eye. I'm delighted to hear you saying all of this, said Calumet. If only all writers felt as you do. Miss Thurplough shook her head modestly declining the implied compliment. I'm like Jehovah, she said. I just am that I am. That's all. Why should I make believe that I'm somebody else? Though I confess, she added, with a greatly daring candor, that I was intimidated by your reputation into pretending that I was more mundane than I really am. I imagined you as being so tremendously worldly and smart, with the great relief to find out that you're not. Smart, repeated Calumet, making a grimace. You sounded so dazzlingly social from Mrs. Aldwinkle's accounts, and as she spoke the words, she felt herself becoming correspondingly obscurer and littler. Callumay laughed. Perhaps I was that sort of imbecile once, he said. But now, well, I hope all that's over now. I pictured you, Miss Thurplau went on, straining, in spite of her obscurity, to be brilliant. I pictured you as one of those people in the sketch, walking in the park with a friend, You know, a friend who would turn out, at the least, to be a duchess or a distinguished novelist. Can you wonder that I was nervous? She dropped back into the depths of her chair. Poor little thing. But the pearls, though not marine, were still rather an embarrassment.